Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read Romans 1, verses 18 to 32, and then we're going to jump to Romans chapter 10 and read a few verses from that chapter as well. Hear then God's word from Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. Verse 21. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served something created instead of the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. Verse 26, this is why God delivered them over to degrading passions. For even their females exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The males, in the same way, also left natural relations with females and were inflamed with their lust for one another. Males committed shameless acts with males and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, verse 31, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know full well God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud or approve others who practice them. Go to chapter 10. On page 802, chapter 10, verses 13 to 17. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who announce the gospel of good things, or the feet of those who gospelize good things. But all did not obey the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard, 
And what is heard or hearing comes through the message about Christ. Father, we praise you that you're a God who speaks. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can worship you just by reading your word out loud. We pray, Father, as we meditate on these words and more words as we jump around the Bible today, that you would give us the big picture of the world and of your mission. And we pray that you would light a fire or enhance a fire in our hearts that burns with a passion for your glory far as the curse is found. We just saying that Jesus rules the nations with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. So, Father, we pray that the nations would see the righteousness and love that you have and use this time for that end, we pray, by your Spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, I want to thank you for coming. It's not every, um, I mean, as a non-Christian, you might not come to a church every Sunday, which is, which is why we're thankful that you chose this Sunday to be with us this, this morning. If you're, if you're thinking, why do Christians have churches? That would be a good question to ask. As Christians, I've been a Christian since 1989, so I've been a Christian for a while, that I, I almost don't ask that question anymore. But it's good for us as Christians to think about, if you're not a Christian, maybe you do think about this, why, why do Christians have churches? What do they exist for? If it's all about having a personal relationship with Jesus, why have church meetings? You can meet with Jesus at home. Why have church buildings, offerings, church membership, budgets, organization? What is the purpose of all these activities, responsibilities, and customs that these Christian churches practice? Why, why do they do these things that we call church? This is a great question because it clarifies a lot about the mission of the church. Here's some wrong answers of why we do it. We do it because Jesus told us to do it. That's true. But you might say, if you're not a Christian, well, why did Jesus tell you to do it? Another wrong answer would be, well... We do these things because we've always done it like this, and that's just what Christians do. Again, that doesn't really answer the question. A non-Christian would still be puzzled as to why you're doing it. Well, because it helps us get closer to God. Is that true? It should, right? Yeah, sure, it does help you get closer to God, but if God really wanted to bring you close, now I'm answering as a Christian here, a non-Christian might not know this, if God really wanted to bring you close, he could just... Take your life and you could be with him. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? And Paul said in Philippians 1, far better for me to depart and be with Christ, but I'm still here for you. So it's better to, if, you, if, it, if the goal is to be close to God, that is the ultimate goal, but if that's why we do church, then why not just go to heaven already? To get to the right answer, and really the whole sermon is about getting to the right answer, I'll answer it at the end, we have to understand the epidemic in the world and the cure. You know what an epidemic is, right? I probably didn't have a good definition of it until I looked it up, but it's a rapid spread of an infectious disease to a large number of people in a given population in a short period of time. So a 
infectious disease spreading rapidly across many, many people, large numbers of people. So if you're going to understand what the church is for and why do we do what we do, you need to understand the epidemic and then the cure for the epidemic. Then you could understand what we're doing here. So that's my outline, really. What is the epidemic? What is the cure? And what are we doing here? Okay? What is the epidemic? What is the cure? And what are we doing here? First, the question, what is the worst epidemic for humanity? Go back to Romans chapter 1, if you would. Romans 1, the epidemic is found in verse 18. For God's, Romans 1, 18, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness. There's the epidemic. Godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You have three ways of naming this epidemic. It's godlessness or ungodliness. It's unrighteousness. And it is suppressing the what? The truth. Three ways overlapping of saying what the epidemic is. Now, if you if there was a epidemic of sickness in the world, what would be the consequences of, of an epidemic? Death, right? Death. And so here, what's the consequence of godlessness, unrighteousness, and suppressing the truth? It's in verse 18, the very beginning of verse 18. What is being revealed from heaven? God's what? God's wrath. The epidemic is sin. And the consequence of this epidemic is God's wrath. God's judgment. So that's, that's the problem in the world. Sin. And so we're going to look at sin, the problem in the world. We'll, we'll, we'll break it down into three parts. We can see this epidemic of sin through creation. We can see it through our conscience and we can see it through covenant. Okay, so let's just look at these one time. Creation, Romans 1.18. It says here, um, verse 19, why do they suppress the truth? Or why is God's wrath revealed? Verse 19. Since what can be known about God is what? Manifest or it's evident among them because who's shown it to them? So God has shown himself, his truth to who? To everyone, right? How? How do we know it's everyone? Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since when? Since the creation of the world. So has God made himself known? Through creation. To who? To everyone. Has he made himself clearly known to everyone? Does it say clearly known here? It does, right? In verse 20. It has been clear. God has made himself clearly known his truth, his power, his invisible attributes, his characteristics, his power, his might, his wisdom, his creativity. It has been clearly seen since or through creation to everyone. And if God has clearly made it known, then that means everyone knows that there's a God. In other words, God does not believe in atheists. Atheists say that they don't believe in. God, but God says he doesn't believe in atheists. Atheists don't exist. Now, I mean, unless Paul's wrong here. So if I have an atheist friend, and I do have atheist friends, if they come to me and say, PJ, I don't believe God exists. I say, I don't believe you. Well, I mean, I believe you. I believe you think you don't think God exists because you're suppressing the truth in what? In unrighteousness. But the Bible says that God has clearly shown himself to you. And he's like, well, God hasn't clearly shown himself to me. If God wants to show himself clearly to me, he'll make this pulpit rise right here, right now to show himself clearly to me. 
Some people might say that. God has to do some big miracle to show me that he exists. And I want to say, or Paul says, God has already shown himself to you clearly. The reason you don't believe in God is not because he hasn't shown himself to you. It's because you have suppressed and blocked off the truth in your mind from believing it. But you know it. Because the Bible says you know it. I mean, I have to believe Paul or my atheist friend. Who are you going to believe? Your, the Apostle Paul or your atheist friend? No offense to our atheist friends, but I'll take the Apostle Paul in the scripture over my atheist friend. I'll take the Apostle Paul over my wife in that regard in terms of believing truth, right? Over myself, over Christians as well. If God's word speaks, this is God's word. So God is speaking. And so the point here is God has revealed himself to everyone through creation. That's why you have other tribal people and people in the remotest parts of the earth and they all have religion, right? They all worship something and they worship creation. They look at the sun, they look at the moon, they look at the stars, they look at nature and they are amazed. Something more powerful than them is here. Why? Because God has shown it clearly to everyone. But does everyone take it in clearly? No, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Look at verse 20. Let me finish verse 20. So he, he has seen it through the creation of the world, being understood through what has been made. As a result, people are what? They are without excuse in verse 20. For though they knew God, so they know him. They did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened, claiming to be wise philosophers. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. They worship other created things. They worship trees. They might worship their spouse. They might worship their job. They might worship their philosophy but they will worship created things instead of worshiping the creator. And that is a problem. They have a debased mind. Eventually it goes into their sexuality. They have distorted um, passions and sexual passions. And then immoral life practices beyond that with greed and wickedness and murder and quarrels and deceit. All of this is a result of suppressing the truth, becoming idolatrous and exchanging God for something else. And then it carries out an expression in your lifestyle. And if you say, well, I don't do those things, you might not do them. But what does verse 32 say? Even um, even though they know that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they do what? They approve those who? Who do it. Right. That's God handing over a culture to a debased mind because they have rejected God's word. So does everyone know God exists in the world? Yes. Is everyone, does anyone have an excuse for not knowing God in the world? No. God has revealed himself to everyone on earth, all seven billion humans on earth through creation. But it's not just through creation. It's also through conscience. Look at chapter two. I'll just pick out a few verses here from chapter two. Uh, Five verses to be exact. Look at chapter two, verse one. Therefore, any one of you who judges is without excuse. So you're also without excuse, the moral person. For when you judge another... You do what to yourself? You condemn yourself since you judge, since you, the judge, do the same things. Look at verse 3. Do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same that you'll escape God's judgment? So in other words, if you tell someone not to lie because it violates your conscience and you feel guilty about lying, when you tell your friend or your, your, your teacher children not to lie, 
do you condemn yourself? I mean, do you judge yourself? You do, right? If you've ever lied before, as you tell your children not to lie, guess what you're showing? That you are guilty of lying in your life, right? Maybe not at that moment, but you have lied before. Okay, and then you go to verse 14. Look at verse 14. So when the Gentiles who do not have the law covenant, they don't have the word of God, the Old Testament. When the Gentiles who do not have the law covenant instinctively do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written where? In verse 15. Where is it written? On their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. So here's the point. People know God exists through creation and through conscience. You don't have to have a church near you. You don't have to hear about the gospel. If you look at your bulletin, what's the que- I have a question here that I'm trying to answer. What happens, what if someone never hears about Jesus? That's the question I'm answering. What if someone never hears about Jesus in the world? Are they going to heaven? Are they guilty? Do they even know God exists? Can God hold them accountable? That's what I'm answering. And my answer is, yes, God knows they exist. Yes, God does hold them accountable because they know God exists through creation. And even if they've never heard about Jesus, they have taught their neighbors and their family certain morals. Don't do this. Do this. Don't do this. Do this. And when they teach that to their kids, they implicate themselves because they know that they have not kept the law perfectly as they've taught others. So they're accountable to God because of creation and because of their conscience. Now, just to finish off the argument of Romans 1 through 3, look at chapter 2, verses 21 and 24. What about those who have the Bible, the law covenant? Those who have the law covenant, this is to the Jews now, in chapter 2, verse 21. You then, Jews, who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you not steal? You have the Ten Commandments. You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, namely the Jews. So here are three groups of people who are condemned before God under God's wrath. Those who see God through creation. Just look at nature around you. Those who see God through conscience, and that's everyone, creation and conscience. And then there's a special group, not everyone, who sees God through the covenant, right? They get the Bible. The Bible, the Old Testament is the, I mean, it begins with the law covenant of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So they they have the law covenant. So whether you have the Bible, you have the covenant, or whether only through creation and conscience, you know God exists. Everyone knows God exists. Everyone is accountable to God. No one has an excuse. And the conclusion, Romans 3, 9. Look at Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read very familiar verses here. Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we any better? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under what? Sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Did you see that? There is no one who seeks God. How many people seek God? No one, right? That's what it says. All have turned away. All alike have become useless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Not even one. 
whether through creation or conscience or covenant, whether you've heard and grew up in a Christian culture that has Christianity, whether you've never heard the name of Jesus, there is none righteous, there is none who does good, all are accountable, no one seeks for God, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. That's the epidemic. And this epidemic leaves no human untouched. Unlike other epidemics that don't spread to everyone. In Romans 5, all who are born under Adam, every descendant of Adam is born in sin. By nature and by choice, we are sinners. And because of that, we're guilty and we're condemned. And the penalty is death in the lake of fire. Condemnation under God's judgment forever. Can I read three passages to you on hell and on the lake of fire just so we can get a picture of what the consequence of this epidemic is in revelation turn to revelation or you can just write this down and look at it later revelation 13 revelation 13 verse 8 All those who live on the earth will worship him. This is talking about worshiping the beast. Everyone whose name was not written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb was what? Slain. Okay, so their names are not written in the book of life. Go to chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. Next chapter. 14, verse 9. And a third angel followed them and spoke with a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's what? Wrath or fury, which is mixed full strength in the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the sight of the holy angels and in the sight of the lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up how long? Forever and ever. There is no rest day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image, or anyone who receives the mark of his name. This torment in the lake of fire under God's fury and wrath is forever and ever and ever. One more verse. Chapter 20, Revelation 20, verse 15. Twenty, verse 15. And anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown where? Into the lake of fire. This is an eternal judgment that never ends. Everlasting death. Not non-existence, self-conscious torment for eternity. Crushed under the wrath of God for our suppression of the truth, for our godlessness, for our unrighteousness, for our breaking and violating our own consciences, and for violating the actual word of God, the covenant written here in the word of God. For our sins, we are under the judgment and wrath of God. And this epidemic covers everyone, all of your neighbors, everyone in this room and everyone outside of this room. So what is the cure for this epidemic? What's the cure? PJ, this is a, it's Christmas season. We're supposed to have some good news, right? Okay, good. Let's get some good news. What is the cure for the epidemic? Go to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3. We're following basically a, a basic outline of the book of Romans here. 
Romans 3:24. So you have Jesus. So you have the incarnation of Jesus here. In, in Romans 5, Jesus is called the man. He was born, Virgin Mary. He was born a human. And then look at Romans 3:24. The people who have sinned are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in who? Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ. Yes, through Jesus the Messiah, the one who is the son of David, born of Mary, a human. Incarnation, that's Christmas, incarnation. Jesus, God the Son, becomes human flesh. In the incarnation, Jesus comes. And then Jesus is crucified. And in that crucifixion, we have redemption. We are bought out of slavery to sin, and we are cured from the epidemic of sin and its consequence, namely God's wrath. So verse 25, we're redeemed, we're bought out. God, how, do we, how were we bought out? What was the price? God presented him, Jesus, as a what? You have a big word here, as a what? Sacrifice of atonement or a propitiation. You guys see that word propitiation in your Bible? Through faith in his blood to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God passed over their sins of all those who he forgave. Because he, where did he put those sins? On who? On Jesus. And when Jesus had the sin of the world on his shoulders, God poured out the full wrath and fury and judgment and condemnation that he has for every single sin of every single sinner who would ever believe. He pours it all out on Jesus on the cross to redeem us from our sins. What a savior. For three hours on the cross, from 12 to 3 p.m., 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., he hangs in darkness, crushed under the mighty wrath of God. What it would take all of us an eternity in hell to, to pay, which means we'll never fully pay it, just goes on forever, he takes in three hours on the cross. That's propitiation. That's the cure for the epidemic. And how do we know that's the cure? Go to Romans 4.25. Romans 4.25. Speaking of Jesus here, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and then what? Raised for our justification. How can we sinners who are guilty be declared righteous, justified? How can we be righteous before God? Through Christ's death and his resurrection, right? If he wasn't raised, the payment wouldn't be received. The check would not have been cleared and we would still be stuck in our sins under God's wrath. But the check has cleared. Jesus has risen from the dead. It is a happy Lord's day. It is the Lord's day because he rose. And because he rose, we don't have to be crushed under God's wrath. We can all be forgiven of every single sin we've ever committed, past, present, and future because of what Jesus Christ has done. Now, that's the cure. Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. That's, that was the second point. What is the cure for this epidemic? Jesus Christ incarnate, crucified, and risen. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might be thinking this. Christianity seems to be built on a concept of a condemning, judgmental, moody, angry deity. He kills people in judgment. For example, non-Christian might think, there's the cross. The teaching that the murder of one man leads to the forgiveness of others. But why can't God just forgive us? The God of Christianity seems like a leftover from primitive religions where peevish gods demand blood in order to assuage their wrath. This is from Tim Keller, The Reason for God. This is how he gets, how he 
raises the question that non-Christians might think. I don't want to be a Christian. Your God is so angry and primitive. He's not forgiving and loving. How would you respond to that? Here's a brief response, again, taken from Tim Keller, The Reason for God. On the cross, God, God does not demand our blood, but offers his own. All forgiveness for any deep wrongdoing committed against you entails injustice and suffering on the forgiver's part. If someone truly wrongs you and hurts you, because of our, sense deep, our, our deep sense of justice, we can't just shrug it off, right? If someone violates you, if someone commits a crime against you, you can't just shrug it off as if it's not a big deal. That sense of justice won't let it go. So you do one of two things. You either make the perpetrator who violated you pay for violating you, and you get revenge or justice through the, through the court system, which is not sinful revenge. You, go, you get justice or you forgive. But if you forgive them, who gets the pain? You do. Because you don't get to see justice served. In other words, you absorb the injustice, right? Forget, when sin happens, there is, like, you can't just say, I forgive it and it goes away. Someone has to absorb the pain. Someone has to absorb the injustice. Who gets it? So, if we can't forgive people without suffering ourselves to forgive them, it takes suffering on our part, the forgiver's part, to forgive someone. If we can't forgive people without suffering ourselves, it's not surprising to learn that God can't forgive us without suffering himself. And he did suffer. Where? On the cross for our sins. So if you're saying, I can't be a Christian because this bloody sacrifice, suffering, wrath for sins is just too much. Well, you know that injustice demands justice. And God took the justice on himself. So if you're not a Christian, here's the good news for you. Just like all of us Christians, we're all sinners. And the good news is, God will forgive you of your sins this morning. If you will repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We're going to get to that verse in a second. Just call on the Lord to save you. Confess your sins. Ask him to forgive you. Receive him as Lord. And he will save you. Okay, now let's go to the more the harder theological question here. But what about the innocent person in the remote places of the earth who lives his entire life never hearing about Jesus? What happens to him? This is how R.C. Sproul has introduced the question. What about the innocent person in a remote place of the earth who never hears about Jesus? When he dies, what happens to him? Does anyone know the answer to that? Let me give you a wrong answer. And I'm sad to give you this wrong answer because Billy Graham gives this wrong answer. Now, he's done a lot for the Lord, and we should praise God for all the good he's done, but here he's given a, he's given a wrong answer. He was interviewed. You can find this online on, on YouTube. He was in, interviewed by Robert Schuller. You guys know who Robert Schuller is? Um, in Orange County, right? The, the Crystal Cathedral. So at the Crystal Cathedral, he's interviewing... Billy Graham, and he says this, I think everybody, or he asked, Billy Graham says, I mean, Robert Schuller says, I think that everybody loves Christ or knows Christ, whether they're conscious of it or not. They're members of the body of Christ. That's what Robert Schuller said. Or no, I'm sorry, Billy Graham says, um, tell me what you think about the future of Christianity. And that's what Billy Graham says. Everybody, whether they know Christ or not, whether they're conscious of it or not, they're members of the body of Christ. 
And then Billy Graham says, quote, He's calling people out of this world for his name. Whether they come from the Muslim world or the Buddhist world or the Christian world or the non-believing world, they are members of the body of Christ because they've been called by God. They may not even know the name of Jesus, but they know in their hearts that they need something that they don't have. And they turn to the only light they have. And I think that they are saved and that is and that they are going to be with us in heaven. And then Robert Schuller says, what I what what I hear you saying that it's possible for Jesus Christ to come into human hearts and soul and life, even if they've been born in darkness and have never had exposure to the Bible. Is that a correct interpretation of what you're saying? Billy Graham says, yes, it is. Because I believe that I've met people in various parts of the world in tribal situations that they have never seen a Bible or heard about a Bible and never heard of Jesus. But they've believed in their hearts that there was a God and they've tried to live a life that was quite apart from the surrounding community in which they lived. Robert Schuller just ecstatic trips over himself for a second and says, I'm so thrilled to hear you say this. There's a wideness in God's mercy. Billy Graham says there is. There definitely is. So Billy Graham's answer to the question, what happens to the innocent person in the remote place who doesn't hear about God? Well, if he believes in God, which we say from Romans 1, everyone knows there's a God. And if he tries to live in the light of what he has, Billy Graham thinks they're saved and that they're going to be with us in heaven. The problem with that is my question. I said, what happens to the, what kind of person? Innocent person in the remote place. Problem is, there is no innocent person, right? I mean, that's what Romans 1, 2, and 3 are saying. All have sinned. None are righteous. They are without excuse. There is no innocent person. R.C. Sproul um, very insightfully told me or said that. So, well, what about, what about people in remote places? And what are we going to do about that? We have a story in the Bible about that. I'm going to summarize it here. You can look at it later. Acts chapter 10. You know the story of Cornelius? He's a devout man. Never heard about Jesus. He's a devout man who prays. And one day he was praying in the morning. It says in Acts 10.1, he was praying. He's a devout man who feared God along with his whole household. He did many charitable deeds. He always prayed to God and says about three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came to him saying, Cornelius. And he said, what is it, Lord? Your prayers and your acts of charity have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for Simon. That's Simon Peter. And so Simon gets a vision. And what does he do? Simon Peter says, he goes. And what does Simon Peter do? He starts to preach the what? The gospel, right? And in the middle of his sermon, before he even says, repent and trust in Jesus, he just tells about Jesus. And the Holy Spirit descends and everyone there gets saved. Was Cornelius saved before he heard the gospel? No, he wasn't. He got a vision from God. A preacher came, was sent by God, preached the gospel, and faith came by hearing. That's what Romans 10 is about, right? Romans 10, just, I mean, look at Romans 10. Romans 10 says, um, well, I did read it. In Romans 10, it says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they call on him they have never heard? How will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless someone is sent? And so they needed to hear the gospel. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which they can be saved. 
Acts chapter 4. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? Through Jesus. There is no other way to God except through Christ's death and resurrection and people believing in Jesus, self-consciously believing in Jesus. And so this is the burden. We have a Lottie Moon offering here. This is important. Why? Let me give you some statistics. If you go to joshuaproject.net, you can find a lot of resources. There's something like this, which gives a basic um, information on what's going on in our, our world today. Do you know the Great Commission? Matthew 28 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. How many nations are there? Now, the nations, don't think nation state. How many, what, what nation do we live in? The United States of America. But we are not one nation in the, in the Matthew 28 sense of nation. Nation there is an ethnic people group. So to give you an example, India is a nation state. They have 2,145 ethnic people groups. Nepal has 250 ethnic people groups. China has 550 ethnic people groups. Nations. When it says go to all nations, we're not just saying go to the nation of China. We're saying go to all ethnic people groups, all 550 of them, to make disciples. Because if they don't hear about Jesus, then they will... Faith comes by hearing. If they don't hear, they won't call. And if they don't call, they won't be saved. And if they're not saved, when they die, they will go to hell, to the lake of fire that burns forever. We have 16,300 people groups, ethnic people groups. 6,600 of them, that's 41%, have very little to no gospel witness. Actually, 1,138, 1,138 ethnic people groups are completely unengaged, which means there's not one Christian or one church or one mission board trying to learn about that. I mean, trying to actually engage that people group. That means, that means, or just to to make it more personal, 86% of the world's Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists have never met a Christian, a Christ follower. 86% of Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus have never met a Christian. And, they, and if they haven't met a Christian or someone who will preach the gospel, they've never heard the gospel. Of those 1,100 people groups that don't have, are completely unengaged, that means the kids that are be, being born right now, December, what is it, 14th or 13th? 13. December 13th, 2015, the, the kids that are born right now among those people groups, they will be born. They will be raised. They will get married. They will have children and ga- grandchildren. They will die without hearing the gospel. And they will be judged for what they have seen in creation and in their conscience before God on Judgment Day. And they will be judged in the lake of fire that burns forever and ever and ever. That is unacceptable for us as Christians, right? We cannot be okay with that. So, if Jesus is the cure, my last question is, what is the delivery for this cure? The delivery for this cure is the sacrificial going, sending, and giving of God's people to gospelize. How do we deliver this cure for this epidemic? The sacrificial going, Sending and giving of God's people to gospelize. Now, this is the International Mission Board offering. 
Do you know who he named it after? Who? Lottie Moon. Now, Lottie, her name was Charlotte, but everyone called her Lottie from the last part of her name. So Lottie Moon, she was born December 12th, 1840. She died December 24th, 1912. She she was saved um, right after high school. She was saved in college around 1857 or 1858 under the ministry of John Broadus. She was saved at the First Baptist Church of Charlottesville in Virginia. Still there today. Southern Baptist Church still preaching the gospel. She was saved there. She was one of the first women in America to get a master's degree. And she was teaching here in the States before she left to the mission field in China to join her sister. Six years after her death, the Women's Missionary Union which is the WMU for Southern Baptist, they named this International Missions Offering after her because it was through her letter writing that the Southern Baptist Convention got together and saying, we need to give money together to support our international missionaries. She set sail for China when she was 32 years old. She turned down a marriage proposal and left her job, her home, and her family to follow God's lead in her life. Her path wasn't typical for an educated woman in a wealthy family in that time, but she was gripped by the need for the Chinese people to hear about Jesus. For 39 years, Lottie labored chiefly in Tengchao, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, and Pingtu. People feared and rejected her because she was not Chinese, right? People feared and rejected her, but she refused to leave. The aroma, I love this, especially given my own um, desires, the aroma of fresh baked cookies drew people to her house. That would draw me. She adopted traditional Chinese dress, and she learned Chinese language and Chinese the China's language and customs. Lottie didn't just serve people in China; she identified with them. Many eventually accepted her, and some people accepted her savior. Now she wrote letters detailing China's hunger for truth and the struggle of so of so few missionaries taking the gospel to the 472 million Chinese in her day. She also shared the urgent need for more workers and for more Southern Baptists to, to support them through praying and giving. Was it a sacrifice to leave your family and friends? This is what she said. If the joy of the Lord be their strength, the blessedness of the work will more than compensate for the hardship. So was it a sacrifice if you get more compensation than what you give in? No. It is a sacrifice in a sense. But when you have the joy of the Lord as your strength, It's not a sacrifice. It's a reward. It's a joy. And so we need to go. Right? It says, how will they hear unless someone preaches to them? We need to go and preach the gospel and make disciples of every ethnic people group. This is what Lottie Moon says again. How many there are who imagine that because Jesus paid it all, they need to pay for nothing. Because Jesus paid it all, they need pay nothing. Forgetting that the prime object of their salvation was that they should follow the footsteps of Jesus Christ in bringing back a lost world to God. She also said this, a young man should ask himself not if it is his duty to go to the heathen, but if he may dare stay at home. The command is plain, go. That's Matthew 28, 19, right? Go therefore and make disciples. All of us here, not just the young, even the retired, all of us here should take Five, ten minutes to pray and ask God today whether he wants us to go to the nations. Our lives are a blank check on the table every year, right? If you're going to follow Christ, we don't, we don't write the conditions of following Jesus. We just follow him. 
And if he tells us to go, what do we do? We go. Our lives are a blank check on the table. We, we don't have any preconditions. Just put it there. Lord, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to go? Let me know so that I will go if you tell me to. So we need to be a going church. We need people from our church to go. Which also means, how will they preach unless they are? It says in Romans 10, how will they preach unless they are sent? We not only need to be a going church, we need to be a sending church. We need to send our missionaries. We need to send our members. That's what Romans 10, 15 a says. So, so we need to be a sending church. We need to keep, and then thirdly, we need to give. We need to give. But before I get to giving, and I will, I don't want us to be content with only giving. We need to do more than give. We, know, we, know, we shouldn't do less than give, but we need to do more than give. We need to go, and we need to send. And we need to be praying that God would raise up people from our midst to go and send. Okay, so going, sending, and giving. Romans 15. Turn to Romans 15. Last passage here. Romans 15, 24. I like Paul's bluntness here. Romans 15, 24 says this. He says, Whenever I travel to Spain, talking to the church at Rome, for I hope to see you when I pass through and to be assisted by you for my journey there, once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. What is Paul saying? You guys are going to give me money, right? I hope to see you guys and hang out with you, and then you guys give me money, and then I'm going to go to Spain because I'm going to preach the gospel where he hasn't been named. And you get it because you're Christians. You understand that we give to go. That sending missionaries is not free. It costs money. It, it, it takes sacrifice. And so churches give sacrificially for the mission. We live sacrificially and we give sacrificially. So we, we are going, we are sending, we are giving. Here's what Lottie Moon said about giving. This is why we do it on Christmas, by the way. Is not the festive season, she's talking about Christmas, is not the festive season when families and friends exchange gifts in memory of the gift laid on the altar of the world for the redemption of the human race, the most appropriate time to consecrate a portion from abounding riches and scant poverty to send forth the good tidings of great joy into all the earth. What is more Christmas than giving to missions, is what she's saying. Right? I mean, the whole point of Christmas is joy to the world the Lord has come. So what is more Christmassy than us giving money to send missionaries to give the message of Christmas to the world? That's Lottie Moon. Why this strange indifference to missions, she says? Why these scant contributions? Why does money fail to be forthcoming when approved men and women are asking to be sent to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ to the heathen, she asks. We want to go. We need money. Send us. Okay, so that's it. Going, sending, giving, and last, or last thing is just growing. Not only do we need to do that, I'll just close with this. We need to keep growing as a healthy church. You know why? We send people out into so, so, so far over the cliff. And what do we do? We hold the what? We're holding a rope, right? You have missionaries down there in the parts that are hard to reach, and the churches in America and the healthy churches are holding the rope. But when Southern Baptist churches and other churches get unhealthy here, and we're not about the mission here, and we're not thriving and growing as a healthy church here, the rope gets looser. And what happens to the missionaries who are depending on us? They fall. So we have a responsibility not only to give, send, and go, we have a responsibility to grow ourselves individually and grow this church. 
so that we become a stronger resource for world missions. Because if people don't hear the gospel, they can't believe. And if they don't believe, they won't call on the Lord. And if they don't call on the Lord, they will not be saved. But we want Christ to save everyone. And so we sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, we are... Sometimes we just take it for granted that we are Christian. We know that you saved us, but we don't realize all the missionary work that, that got the gospel to us. And were it not for Christians centuries ago and decades ago, we would not be Christians today. Lord, we pray for these 1,138 unengaged people groups and the 6,600 unreached or least reached people groups. We pray that 100 years from now or 200 years from now, generations will be hearing the gospel because of what we give today. And what we give this month. And who we send this year or this coming year. And who goes. And as our church grows here and as we seek to become a more healthy church here. We pray that it would impact the nations. So that in the great reunion when Christ returns. We will celebrate with brothers and sisters. Who have felt the ripple effects of our sacrifice today. God, would you please give us a broad and big perspective of why we are doing what we do as a church. It's not just to do it. It's not just to get closer to you, though it is that. It's because there are lost people groups and lost people in Bellflower and Southeast L.A. County who need to hear about Jesus. So send us, Father. Help us to send others. Help us to give sacrificially. Lord, you have blessed our church with generosity. Our church has been faithful in giving year after year. And we want to explode this $2,200 barrier or goal with giving to world missions. We want to give sacrificially this Christmas. So help us, Father, and grow our church in health. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.